One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. In case you haven't noticed, it's the final day of the summer transfer window. A traditional time for football to lose its collective mind. It's also a good time to judge the effectiveness of a new breed of sporting or technical directors. I've been to see one of the best, Norwich City's Stuart Webber. I'm sure his vision and values will strike a chord with you, as they did with me. But Liverpool, by common consent, have made the sporting director model work brilliantly. Yet now we have Jurgen Klopp suggesting, ever so politely, that the club owners should take more risks in the transfer market. It's a bit of a delicate balance, isn't it, Paul? Yes, as ever, Mike. Liverpool are in a unique position as well of of having to close this tiny gap with a you know this formidable rival, Man City, who are just marginally better than them or have been in the league over the last few years. So Liverpool will have gone into this summer thinking, right, you know, how do we turn this round? How do we redress this tiny imbalance? The temptation must have been to throw money at the midfield. That's what everybody was telling them to do. They haven't done that. They may be paying the price for it a little bit at the start of the season. There's no question that there's been a sort of knock to their confidence in August. And that 9-0 win over Bournemouth will have settled them down a bit. But obviously they're a club that are very good now at planning long term. Their recruitment has been excellent over the last few years. But every now and again, your your long-term recruitment can be brilliant, but you'll encounter short-term problems. You'll hit a rocky patch as they have in this first month of the season. And then everybody starts questioning the long-term strategy. As ever, as we know, Mike, it's, it's a question of short-term and long-term thinking that enables you to progress. But I, I would think they're having a look at themselves and thinking, right, have we still got this right? Yeah, well, by common consent, you know, they had in Michael Edwards, Rich, you know, the best in class, if you like. And there's been a relatively smooth succession to Julian Ward, you know, who's got an interesting background, ex-Manchester City, Portuguese Federation, but he'd been at Liverpool for the best part of 10 years. He's obviously going to be judged on the need that they have to strengthen the midfield quickly. And that's a public test for him, isn't it? It really is. If you look at it on face value, I mean, Liverpool have done well in that regard over the last few years. And they are at the moment struggling with injuries. And maybe that's where the kind of inertia or reluctance to make those kind of snap purchases have come from. You know, last season we saw Thiago, Fabinho and Henderson and that trio doing very, very well. We see the likes of Javier that coming into the four. Obviously, Curtis Jones is you know, one with real potential and, and they've brought Fabio Carvalho as well. So when everybody is fit and firing, maybe the argument there is that they don't want to rush into a sign-in. Maybe, you know, they want to get the wrong body in. And we've seen in the past, when you look at the sign of Virgil van Dijk, they waited a year to get that one over the line to make sure that they got the best candidate for, for that role, which which they needed at, at the time. But it's clear to see, you know, that there are improvements needed in midfield, regardless of the personnel that they do have. I mean, Julian Ward's done well already. I guess, you know, the tie-in salad down to a new contract was obviously a big win for him as well. And, and maybe it's just a case of going down the same line as they did with Van Dijk and maybe waiting a year for that 
real marquee signing to come in and really make a difference rather than a stopgap which we've seen in uh, in previous seasons. Yeah, the name has obviously been mentioned is Jude Bellingham in that regard, isn't it? Well, let's wait till next year. It's the Liverpool or the Merseyside derby, Paul, on Saturday. It's the lunchtime game on BT Sport. Goodison will be expectant as ever in these circumstances. But there is a real contrast here, isn't there? When you think about it, they've just employed Kevin Thelwell, former Wolves and New York Red Bulls sporting director, to try and make sense of, of what's really been a mess of recruitment over successive management regimes. The best symbol of that, Mike, I suppose, is, you know, Deli Ali leaving the club. Deli Ali was signed for a relegation battle at a time when people were, you know, questioning his sort of appetite for the game. That was symptomatic of Everton's kind of make it up as you go along pattern in the transfer market. So Kevin Thelwell has to correct that now. He has to start thinking beyond the next five games. And it's a big job because you don't turn around a bad recruitment pattern quickly. Everybody expects you to do it in six months. It simply does not happen. And by the looks of it, Everton are going to be in the bottom half of the table again. So there'll be pressure on Frank Lampard. There'll be pressure from Goodison Park, the fans on the owner. It's not easy to work in that environment. You have to stay calm. You have to think long term. You have to stick to your plan. You know, and we're about to discover whether Kevin Thelwell has one for Everton. I mean, specifically tailored to Everton and the problems that he's inherited. Yeah, because you know, as we know, Rich, football really is a fashion business. You know, if you look at this window in particular, the story of Anthony Gordon is quite instructive. Almost out of nowhere, he became touted as this £60 million player for Chelsea. Yet, okay, he's a fine young player, but is he part of the problem of, of a transfer window where everything is just hyper-inflated, emotions and money and everything else? Yeah, I think you hit the nail in the head with that question. You know, you look at the fee being being touted, and, and you think, wow. I mean, of course, Anthony Gordon is a is a big talent. We've seen that what he gives to Everton with his pace, and I'm sure when he improves his end product, then kind of grows in maturity within Everton, and if he goes further afield, we will see a, a really, really good player there. But as you say, that the fee that's being speculated north of sixty million pounds is it seems astounding, really. As you say, for someone who's not really done much in the game yet, obviously a great talent, but still a long way to go. And touching on on Thelwell as well, I know. I think the last time I came on the podcast at the end of last season, we asked what is their cultural review or reset going to look like. And at the time, you know, had didn't really have a clue really because it just seemed like such a mess. And obviously Lampard came in and did this whole stabilising job and kept them up. And you know, I think he has a, he has had a quite instructive summer. You know, trying to really change the culture at the club you know looking for young hungry players and obviously you know to complement the manager as well so it'll be interesting to see as, as Paul said whether he can implement that obviously you'd like to think from an Everton perspective that Gordon would be central to those plans as a as a young player coming through the system and, and, and doing very well but you know I guess around him say so they brought the, the young hungry players they brought the experience and those players with, with good characters so you can see that what they're trying to do and what they're trying to build but We've seen in Everton, there's been a lot of short-termism there. If Lampard is being backed with these kind of players, then he needs time to really implement that and really get that kind of that cultural change, which I think the club's needed, as you mentioned in the question, from the vast amounts of money that they've wasted and the number of managers that have come through the door. Mm. What do you make of Chelsea, Paul? You know, there's obviously a bit of a void there in, in management terms, if nothing else. You've got the new owner, Ted Bowley, having a very hands-on role. You know, he's insisting that Wes Fafana, for instance, goes to the US for his medical. Now, I'm told he's he's using Neil Bath, the longtime head of youth development, as a bit of a sounding board. But is that type of strategy, probably born because of the timing of the takeover, is that sustainable? Well, Gary Neville used that word sustainable on Twitter this morning. He accused Todd Bowley of running around like a kid in a sweet shop just buying people randomly. He's overpaying for players, there's no question about that. That £65 million for Mark Cucurella was extravagant, to say the least. He's an extremely good player, but, you know, not £65 million yet. And Wesley Fofana, 
they'd appear to be willing to spend whatever Leicester asked for. I don't blame them in some respects because, to me, he's the best young centre-back, certainly in the Premier League, possibly in Europe. So he could be a very good investment. But it does seem that Todd Bowley is trying to prove a point with his spending to show perhaps the game and the fans that the Roman Abramovich era is going to continue in another form and everybody can relax. The club mean business. The club are going to stay in the top four. Uh, the club are going to compete for the very best players. But a lot of people, a lot of analysts and experts feel it's a bit random at the moment and that they're spending too much. There's not really a sensible pattern to it. Although, again, Raheem Sterling was an absolutely excellent buy at that price particularly. But the way they've started the season is, is unsettling because the parts of the team don't seem to fit together. Tuchel doesn't seem to be able to get them to focus and play consistently. He hasn't found a balanced team yet. There are players, still players coming in or they're still chasing players. So it suggests that, the, uh, that with all that spending, he's, so far he's unsettled the squad rather than set it up for the future. Two months down the line, if they win 10 games, we might be saying that it's all working out nicely. But at the moment... I don't hear very many complimentary comments about what Chelsea are trying to do in the market. No, and, and on the pitch as well, you know, that uh, 2-1 defeat against Southampton on Tuesday night, Rich had the alarm bells sounding quietly, let's say. When you look at it, the big decision always that would face a sporting director or, you know, if we say the owner now is the sporting director by proxy, is the identity of the manager. You know, we've already had Scott Parker sacked essentially for talking out of turn. Is Thomas Tuchel, do you think, on thin ice? I wouldn't go as far to say as, as thin ice. I mean, of course, he's got credit in the bank, but Chelsea's form is, is alarming. You know, they didn't end the season too well. At the back end of last season, as I'd say, I think 15 points from the last 10 games for you know, a side of Chelsea's quality you know, isn't good enough. I mean, I guess you can say they, they towered off because they knew they weren't going to win the league and they were so far ahead of the, the race for fourth place that they almost had that in, in the bag. But you would have expected them to start this season with some kind of uh, form and momentum. And they say, apart from the Spurs game, where I, I thought they played very well, as Paul said, they do seem a bit um, disjointed. It's, it's almost as if, as you say, the pieces that have been brought in and not not to criticize the new signings but just in general i mean just the pieces that, that are there they don't seem to be fitting correctly in, in the jigsaw which which two looks for i feel i feel been baffled by some of the decisions that have been made sometimes you look at the side is it the setup is it a bit too defensive you worry about whether Chelsea needs to get a new forward in i know they're looking at some players but you know they are lacking that cutting edge as well so it's something for for two to ponder because they really need to as you say, hit the ground running now. As you say, there's a series of poor performances now with the fixtures coming up thick and fast. You know, he really needs to find a solution. Mm. Let's look elsewhere in the capital, if we could, please, Paul. North London specifically. It seems that Spurs are being rewarded for the, the general overhaul of their recruitment staff and strategy. Arsenal as well. There seems to be a more synchronised approach between Mikel Arteta and Edu, their sporting director. Do you expect both North London clubs to be prominent candidates for top four this year? Yes, I do. I mean, on Spurs, I must admit, I, I got this one wrong because I thought Antonio Conte had come in as a short-term measure to do Daniel Levy a favour after the Mourinho disaster and that he'd hang around earn a, for a while, earn a huge salary and then head off somewhere to a club with bigger ambitions. But actually, there's been a quite impressive structural reform in the last 12 months and the quality of player in that side has risen substantially. I'm not convinced they're there yet. I think, you know, they, the way they were outplayed at Chelsea recently was a, a little warning sign to those who think that Conte suddenly transformed them into title contenders, but they made huge progress. And, and Arsenal, again, after making years and years of substandard buys and mistakes in the transfer market, there's been a two-season pattern now of them making good decisions and I certainly think this is the best squad since Arsene Wenger left so last year they acquired you know Odegaard, Ben White and Ramsdale this year Zinchenko, Jesus and Fabio Vieira that means they've, they've done it two seasons running now they've made good decisions two years in a row and 
particularly, I think, getting Zinchenko and Jesus, two proven title-winning players, was an incredible, you know, cherry from a tree. Manchester City have done Arsenal such a big favour in sending them those two players. And I think they are the transformative buys for Arsenal. And those two players particularly give them a chance now of finishing in the top four. Yeah. Now, Arsenal are at Old Trafford on the Sunday. Rich, we all know that Manchester United have a lot of money. You know, some would say too much. But there's certainly very little sign of an, any apparent cogent direction. Despite the formality of the club structure, isn't Eric Tang Hag having to operate not just as a manager or a coach, but a de facto sporting director himself? Because it seems that he's driving recruitment. He is. It's, um, you know, when you look at the, the players that uh, you know, United are, are targeting and have brought in, you know, they're very much... Ericsson Hart players, players who Ericsson Hart knows, players that fit Ericsson Hart's profile of player, which he wants, which you can look at it two ways. You can look at it in the sense that, okay, this is the manager pulling his own stamp on things and he's saying, if I'm going to be the manager here and I'm going to be backed, I need to get my players. But when you talk about structure, as we've alluded to in previous questions, having that the sporting director or as football director, as to say, in John Murta and, you know, recruiting that kind of player. I guess Tang Hard when he, when he comes in, when he came in, you know, he probably wants to focus on the football inside and, and get the team playing in his image, which we all know is, you know, high energy, playing out from the back and, and things like that. So him having to divert his attention to pursue players as well is counterintuitive. But I guess you look at the signings that he's brought in, you say, you know, I think he, he does deserve praise for the signing of uh, Tyrell Malassia. I think for say fifteen million or so, I think he he looks like a really good cost-effective buy. But then you look elsewhere and you see the excessive fee for Anthony, which looks very likely to be happening now. Well, I think it was confirmed on on Tuesday. And again, you see you see both ends of the scale, and you do see that that kind of muddled muddled thinking. I was pleased from a United perspective that they did get Casemiro over the line. I guess you know they did need an element of stability in, in central midfield. But um, as you say, it's going to take a while for Ten Hag to get his his methods across. It did look good in pre-season, but um, as you say, looking at the first couple of games, it all seemed to just kind of showcase that, that muddled thinking. So I think it's a work in progress. It really is a work in progress. But um, as, as we always say, questions do need to be asked of that structure above him. Are they providing him with the right tools to get what he needs? And, and and that's not just money, but it's recruiting the right players for his system. Yeah, well, the fact remains that Ajax have made more from the sales of Anthony and Lisandro Martinez, which is around about 165 million euros, something like that. They made more from those sales than from their traditional turnover, or their, certainly their turnover in 20. 21 season, which was around about 125 million euros. Paul, has football's innate inequality ever been more starkly defined than that fact? No. I think Eric Ten Hag misunderstood it. Uh, he's supposed to get the leaving gift. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's given uh, Ajax a huge golden goodbye there with Anthony and Sandra Martinez. And for perspective, Anthony has scored... 18 goals in 47 games in the top Dutch league. He might well be a world beater, but his fee is way out of sync with the data. So Ajax probably can't believe their luck that they've sold a player with potential for £85 million. And the old Ajax model was to sell to survive, but this is a spectacular windfall for them from Manchester United. And at some level, they must thank the day they let Ten Hag go to Old Trafford because, you know, as you said, Mike, he came back with cheques for £135 million or whatever it is. But it is another sign that the Premier League uh, spending and wealth is kind of out of control and that these some of these transfer fees don't reflect any kind of data-driven reality anymore. All these clubs boast that they have these analysis departments that are making these incredibly nuanced decisions about players. But actually what we're seeing is that a lot of clubs are spending this money just because they can. And it's as much about ego as it is about rational analysis. Yeah, well, Stuart Webber is certainly operating within the limits of inequality at Norwich City this season. Now, he runs that club 
sustainably with clarity and a firm belief in innovation. We began a wide-ranging conversation with a topical question. Well, Stuart, thanks for joining us. Grateful for your time as ever. It's the final day of the transfer window. As a sporting director, are you actually doing your job if you're caught up in the madness of all that? I think yes and no. I think ideally no. I think most people sat in my chair would like to think by well, a long time before deadline day, especially because you have to remember the season kicked off four weeks ago, that you've done your work and preparation and, and everything. So, you know, deadline day should normally be smooth, but then that can be disrupted by if another club aren't maybe as organised and come and disrupt you by offering for a player which is deemed as an acceptable amount, which then makes you go into the market yourselves. So I think the ideal world is it's a nice quiet day and you know maybe you've got a couple of last young players to go out who you've kept with you for the cup games and stuff in August, uh, but maybe it's time for them to go out. But other than that, yeah, it should be quiet. But then, like I say, it only takes one of a club who puts in an offer that you can't refuse, which then has a domino knock-on effect for us then needing to replace that player potentially, which then means the player we take from another club's having to be replaced and then you can sometimes have the madness. But I also believe that when you see these deals happening last minute and ex-club has just signed four players, I'm thinking, why have you waited that long? We've had seven games in August. So you've already missed, I don't know what, what that is, an eight for the season. That doesn't always make a lot of sense to me either. Mm. When you're in that situation, how big is the temptation to make this grand gesture, you know, the trophy signing, almost allow your ego or desperation to get in the way of it all? Yeah, I think you have to take the ego out of it. You have to ignore the noise because, you know, people love a signing, whether that's supporters or media, you know, the drama of a signing, but they don't love the signing if it's the wrong one two weeks later and then you're getting crucified for why did you sign that player? So I try and, and we at this club try and keep that away from it so we don't have muddled thinking. I think we're very fortunate here that, you know, we have an experienced coach, we have experienced owners. So there isn't like a real desire just to give people a quick hit of, you know, everyone's happy for 12 hours and then they come down and, and we don't believe in that. I think sometimes you wish almost you didn't do your business early and you did do it late to get that moment that everyone, you know, is super excited. But yeah, we have to ignore that noise and do the work in the best way we think, right? And we believe the best way is to try and do it as early as possible to give the players as much time to adapt to their teammates, to the culture, to the environment, to the coaching as they can. And for the coach to have them on the pitch as quick as possible. Whereas the later you leave it, these players are missing games. So yeah, we, we don't, luckily, I think we're experienced enough not to get caught up in that excitement. Mm. You're known externally because of recent events or recent seasons as a bit of a yo-yo club. Is that a blessing or a curse? Well, I think, again, it's probably both. I think it's a blessing because I'm sure there's probably 70 clubs who'd swap places with us, you know, to have last two of the last three years in the Premier League, the biggest league in the world. I think we could name between us very quickly a lot of clubs who would do a lot for that. But it's also a curse as well, and it's something that we have to work very hard as a club to get back to the Premier League and stay there and sustain ourselves there. And that is our work every day. That's all we're aiming to achieve. And we're the ones who have to be in control of getting rid of that tag. But it is also a curse because, you know, it happened last time. As soon as we got promoted, you know, we're written off. And it becomes a real tough noise to deal with and a tough psychology to get everyone's head round of we have to change that. But that's for us. We're in control of that. And we need to keep working really hard and, and working differently and smarter to try and achieve that ultimate objective. Mm. Because it's very easy to look at people in football and think, well, actually, do they really, not so much care, but does it have a deep impact on them as human beings when they fail and they fail quite publicly? Mm. You've been relegated again. What was your first reaction when your relegation was confirmed a couple of months ago? And how did you deal with that? And how did you transmit the message to everyone around you that this can't happen again? It's tough. I mean, it's dealing with it is, it's horrible. Um, it's the closest thing to a death, a close death in the family. You know, I know people think that's a bit dramatic, but when you work in this industry and when you do this, it means that much to you. People, when they say 
it's just a game or it doesn't matter. It's like, no, you dedicate your life to your craft and your industry. And then when relegation happens, it's horrific because you can only talk for yourself, but you walk around feeling like you've just let people down. People look at you differently, you know, as if, I remember having a conversation with Eddie Jones about this. And he said that when they, he was an Australia coach and they lost a World Cup final, he says he's walking to the shops and people looked at him as if he'd killed someone. And I had the same feeling. I was walking through a car park at the stadium and people were almost like avoiding me. And I'm thinking, oh, why have I killed someone here? Or, you know, so like super tough to deal with, but it makes you more resilient. But what we have to do is once we get over that initial, let's call it morning stage of it happening, we have to then analyze why did it happen? What can we learn from it? How do we get better? And, you know, one of our values as a club is growth. And we talk about every year we have to grow more. And then we have to analyze last year, did we grow more? Yeah, we, we did. Now, it wasn't to the ultimate success that we wanted, which was to remain in the Premier League, but there were still shoots of, no, we're still going in a, in a good direction. Now, the ultimate aim is we need to work out a way of within our constraints that we've got, which are different to other clubs, and some people don't like to hear that, but it's a fact. And it's like, so we have to work out, keep working out, how do we become even more successful within this model? And that is sustaining ourselves in the Premier League, and not for one year, because you can do a lot of damage staying for one year, and then getting relegated, it's staying there for a number of years and then being able to grow. You know, I always talk about Southampton have been a great model. I thought Burnley was a great model of that under Sean. Obviously, it ran out this year, unfortunately for them, but it was, you know, they were a great way of, no, no, this can be done in a very similar way that, that we're trying to do. But do, do clubs like that, you know, of a certain budget, let's be honest, are they always going to be susceptible to like a football inversion of gravity. You yes. know, Burnley had their five years. Is there a finite time that you can sort of almost like dance on the tightrope? I think there is. I think if you spoke to any of the bottom 10, 11 clubs in the Premier League, I reckon every start of every season, it would be their first objective would be, we need to try and stay up. Because you're only, if you look at the squads, I don't know, Palace, Southampton, even Wolves, these sort of clubs, they're only two bad injuries away from their squad and their team being maybe not great. You're only some bad decisions away from getting relegated, you know, changing the coach, your coach leaves, signing the wrong player, selling the wrong player from, because the league is so difficult. I think that's the other bit as well is people, I think are losing sight of just how good the Premier League is. There's a reason why at the final stages of European football, it's always the English clubs, the Premier League clubs that are there. There's a reason for that. The quality of the league is outstanding. We were able to sign players last year with the smallest budget that clubs in top six of Spain and Germany couldn't sign because we could afford more than what they can. So the power and the strength and the quality of the Premier League, which is something which, you know, as a country we should be incredibly proud of because we're a small little island that we have got the best league in the world and the best players want to come here, the best coaches want to come here. The facilities are the best, the stadiums growing, all these different things. That means it's incredibly tough to get in there, first of all, but then to stay in there and to keep staying in there. And um, But that's probably what makes it quite exciting as well, that there is a tightrope for a lot of clubs. You know, I don't expect you to bite the hand that feeds you here, but the principle of parachute payments, good or bad thing? I think it's a necessity. I think... Um, I hate the quote, it's a reward for failure. I just flip that, no, it's a reward for success. Because what people forget is, you know, I worked previously at Huddersfield, we got promoted to the Premier League. Nope, not a parachute payment club. When Norwich got promoted four years ago, we weren't a parachute payment club. So Nottingham Forest last year, weren't a parachute payment club. So I actually get annoyed about it when you hear clubs talk about it. Because I think it's an excuse. I think it's a really excuse, easy excuse to go, oh, we can't get promoted because we haven't got the money. Okay, but there's been so many examples of it. If you didn't do it, if there wasn't parachute payments, clubs, unless you've got an incredibly rich owner, like maybe Forrest or someone like that, who can spend whatever and it doesn't really touch the sides, clubs would go up and not spend because you will then go bust if you come down and have a wage bill which you're not propped up for. And then that's really unhealthy for the Premier League that if every year three clubs come up and literally didn't have a go at all, then they are guaranteed then to to come straight back down. And that, that can't be good for, for the competition. So I get the argument, but I don't think there's enough balance on both sides of it. I think what we need to do as a football pyramid 
is A, the Football League and Premier League need to talk more and that needs to become a, what's best for our game, not our league, your league. It's like, no, what's best for our game? We need to distribute money better. We need to work harder as um, the Football League about our product. Because if we look at the championship, the viewing figures, the size of clubs in it, you know, we've had Leeds, Villa, Newcastle in it the last few years, West Ham, massive football clubs. It's like, are we truly doing enough to sell the product, which is a football league, which is an outstanding product. It's a unique competition where the league for who can go up, who can go down runs literally from August to May. You know, you can ask a hundred people now who will go up and a hundred people come with different names of clubs and likewise who will go down. So I think we've got to collectively work harder on that. But then I also think with the distribution of funds, I think people's answer to that will just be to spend more money on players. I think that's wrong. I think if there's more distribution of funds, it's how do we invest stronger in our infrastructure? How do we invest stronger in our academies to protect the longevity of our game? Because I think if you said to certain clubs in the championship, here's an extra 10 million this year, I think they'd go and just spend more money on average players and would get the same results, by the way, because everything, oh, get promoted then. No, no, you won't. You'll just give someone who's worth six grand a week, you'll give him 10 because you've got that money. Whereas I think when the money does filter down, which it should, of course, it needs to be more money. It's about what are you doing to develop your game? And then I think the clubs who are much more forward thinking, who spend more on infrastructure, community, academy, etc., they should actually get more, not just to go into a pot to some chairman somewhere who suddenly goes, let's blow it on one money or we lose the first four games, right? I can afford to sack the coach now and overpay another coach. So I think... That's my issue with it is I think the lazy thought about the parachute payments is just give more money to make it the league more equal. I think if you're doing that, fine, but it's got to be real rules on what that money's spent or else the money will be lost. It'll be lost to agents, bang average players, and that's not good for our game. We need to develop the game constantly. So being smaller, with a great respect, being a smaller club, does that mean you've got to be smarter? Yeah, we talk about here, we have, to, uh, we have to be smarter, yes, but we have to work harder and we have to be more creative and we have to take more risks. So we have to take risks, whether that's in our recruitment, whether that's in player development, whether that's young players, whether that's coach appointments, whether, whatever it is, we have to do that. But, you know, it's, it's little things here where we've spent a lot of money the last five years on our infrastructure because, you know, we are a small club, but we want to become a bigger club. So it's like, well, we need to do a training ground the, when we want to sign a player, they come and go, well, actually, this training ground's close to world class. Actually, this is a bigger club than we thought. You know, our stadium sells out every week, whatever division we're in, and, and the club should be incredibly proud of that. So I think it's doing them things, but then it's also we have to think differently. So, you know, we, for example, we've started a year ago a data and innovation department because we want to look at not the normal routes of data of how many kilometers did a player run or whatever, because everyone's got that information now and it's it's about what you do with that information, not just having it. But now we're looking at, can we look five years ahead of trend of the game? Can we analyze via data, you know, players' behavior on the pitch, which tells us whether he's a leader or not? Can we use this data to analyze coaches? So when we're talking about player development, can we actually see, well, what's the work being done to make these players better or not? And these are all the, the new things that we need to be ahead of the curve of to be a bit different. Because if we do the same as every other club, with a great respect to ourselves, we're probably around 30th in the country because that's probably our, where our size is, roughly. So we have to try and think differently. This year we've appointed a set-piece coach because you know we've identified, for example, in the Premier League, we were 20 points short and probably 20 goals short. If you take Brentford last year, they scored 16 goals from set-pieces. We scored two. So if we can close that gap, let's say a further 10 goals, that might be 15, 11 points. Right there. If we could score 15 goals from set pieces, that's a 30 million pound striker from set pieces. So it's it's trying to constantly think differently, not necessarily better, because that's definitely not the case, but we have to think differently. If we do the same as everyone else, we'll get the same results, well, or probably worse results. Because when we look at, at footballers, you know, we, we make the judgment call, you know, look, look back at you know, clips that you see from, say, 20 years ago, the players are quicker, bigger, leaner, when you talk about planning for five years' time, what's your vision of the game in five years' time or ten years' time? Where, how's it going to change? Well, I think to all them points are right. And I think even if you look at the game, how much it's changed in the last three years, because 
we've changed. If you think about the game in the last three years alone, the goal kicks have changed because defenders can now go in the box. So that changes how we can build up the game, but also how do you press against that? So that's a fundamental change in the game, which I think a lot of people have forgot to talk about. Of like, no, the game changed. The minute they said centre-halves or any of your players can drop in the box. And also now the, the introduction, introduction sorry, of five substitutes, you know, because it's almost can get a bit of a rugby feel. If you talk to the guys in rugby union, they the talk about finisher the finishers. Yeah. And I think our game now, we have to think about it like that of, well, 30 minutes ago, you can make five subs. That, that is half your outfield team. That is your whole attack if you want to do that. So even that short time, it's changed sort of considerably about how we need to think. But I think the game won't slow down. So we've looked at, we've actually uh, bought a thing here called a Soccerbot 360. It's the only one in the country. It's Ralph Ramnick come up with the idea when he was at Hoffenheim and then, and then at Red Bull. He was kind enough to show me it when I went and saw him when he was previously at Leipzig. And that is there to develop players' cognitive ability, their ability to make decisions quicker, to see things quicker. And we... Is that one of the, the where, where the ball comes out of the wall at different angles? No, slightly different. So you have the ball in the wall. And then it flicks up with different light. So like, let's say there's a panel there, it's 360. Panel there to your right, let's say, you pass it in. But while you're doing that, the spot, for example, flashes up where the next one's going to be. So it's about always being your head moving. Scandal. A bit like if you look at Paul Scholes when he played, you know, like, or Frank Lampard, how he should constantly check their shoulder and be space aware and all that. So we've looked at it and we've done some research of, so the game will get physically quicker because that's just, humans are getting physically better. If you look, you know, we were talking before about Everest and Nims Perger did what he did in eight months. The previous record was seven years. It's all human. And someone will do it in four months soon and then three because it's like a four minute mile, right? It's the physical body will always keep evolving with nutrition and everything. We look at football and the evidence says it's going to be the players who can make quicker decisions and see things quicker, which are going to be then the next level difference so that affects then our recruitment of the type of player we want to recruit when we're thinking two three four five transfer windows ahead and also then obviously we'll have a knock-on effect of the work we do within our academy and then subsequently the first team of how do we coach if we if we know now in five years we think the game will be physically quicker and let's say people making quicker decisions well that's our 12 13 14 year olds now are going to be playing that game so in five years so we need to be going on that journey with them now not when it happens in five years, because we've probably missed the boat. So, you know, there's a lot of research we're doing around that and we need to continue doing because that's that's a bit. The game's always evolving. Mm. Society's evolving. People are evolving. So it's not only what does a game look like in five years, what does a person look like in five years? So what's the 18-year-old in five years going to look like? You know, I've got a six-year-old boy. I, I'm without wishing his life away. I'm looking forward to him growing up. So at least I can be a bit more to trends then because at the minute I can't relate to an 18-year-old because the, gap, the gap's miles ahead. I can relate to a six-year-old because I get to see a six-year-old every day. And I think that's, we have to constantly... Because it's think, a young man's game, isn't it? I, I, I talk a lot to, to coaches and managers who, who say, well, look, I'm 45 or I'm 52 and I'm trying to relate to an 18-year-old. Brendan Rogers told me recently, you know, he was trying to talk about Mike Tyson <laughs> to some of his players. They'd never heard of him, yeah. which blew my head off, I have to yeah. say. So in that, this whole idea of innovation, if you like, for want of a better phrase, you've taken this initiative also of appointing position-specific scouts. Can you give me an idea of the logic behind that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it actually the idea of Lee Dunn, who heads up our recruitment, who comes from a, a data and analytical background. And he came to me in the summer and said, thinking of doing this. I'm like, well, give me some evidence to why I think it might be right and why I think it might be good for the scout to be focused on that as opposed to previously we did it, scout would be focused on, let's say, on Germany and Spain and another one on France and Belgium or whatever. Whereas now what this gives the opportunity is for the scout and for then subsequently us as a club is then to be over different countries. So maybe can it take away a bit of the bias of I've been watching Holland the whole time, I want to push players from Holland, whereas suddenly I'm watching man, a right back from Holland one from Portugal, one from Brazil, two from England. And it becomes about the player and his position as opposed to that. But I think what it will also help us do is educate the scout, teach the scout to be more specific. Because it's as you well know, it's very hard 
watching games sometimes, you've got 22 players on the pitch. If you can be super focused in on, mm. actually, I'm not actually looking at four now. I'm looking at full backs. Mm. I'm actually looking at four it's players. It's amazing how my, I, you know, it's a trick that I've been passed on to by an old scout. Just look at one player for 20 minutes. Mm. You see so much. You it's see ridiculous. so much more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, and and I think that comes with experience. I think I remember you did something with Mel Johnson once. I remember watching it yeah. on TV and he spoke about that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's where, when we talk about a young man's game, but that's where experience also comes in of, let's say, Mel, where he can, he's been through years and years to know that. That's a bit as well, which we can't certainly ignore. As we've discussed, football was an innately conservative game and you're known as being, you know, fairly unorthodox in many areas. Is that because of your background? You know, not many people end up as a sporting director uh, when they begin as a one-day-a-week groundsman at Wrexham. What did it say about you that you've made that progress or you've achieved that? I think it's quite difficult to answer that, but I do think I see things in life just a little bit differently. I'm also not scared of, and I never have been, scared of, let's try something new, let's try something different. It excites me. Sometimes you get that wrong and you didn't need to do something different and you did, not for the sake of it, but maybe sometimes, certainly when I was less experienced, trying to be a bit too clever and that's also not good. But, you know, I remember, I've been so fortunate. My, my football upbringing was with people like Joey Jones, Dennis Smith, super successful, super experienced people who keep you grounded in that. But, but I think when you work at a Wrexham, and I wish sometimes our staff would have had that apprenticeship because you do have to do everything from driving a minibus to cleaning kit to cutting pitches to everything. So I think that that helps you get a wider view of the game. And what it does do, it teaches you to be with people. So you're with so many different people all the time, whether you're helping out the kit man or with Joey, who's won two European Cups, completely different people. So, you know, you get so much experience from that. But yeah, I, I don't know why. It's, it's, I think I've just always thought a bit differently and I'm not scared of trying stuff. Failure doesn't scare me at all. In fact, it excites me in terms of we'll learn from it. I, I, you know, I worked out quite early that failure is a lesson, not the end. All right, maybe it's the end if you die, of course. If you do something and you fail and it leads to death, that's, yeah, that's obviously not great. But in terms of other than that, I think it's, you can learn a lot from that. And I look at it as well, like we're here once. You know, it's Kenny Dalgleish used to say um, to young players, this isn't a rehearsal, you live once. And that used to always sit with me of, he's right. So let's give things a go. I don't want to be retiring at whatever age, 60, and going, you know, I did the same as everyone else. That doesn't excite me at all. It's the thought of we achieved some stuff at that club or this place or with these people. We helped these people. We made a difference. And I think that's always been my driver is can you make a difference? Leave somewhere better than what you found it. And if you can, great. And then move on to the next challenge. Yeah. So we're here in your, in your office at the training ground. On the wall, you've got your values of the club. Pride growth, integrity, belonging, resilience, commitment. Fine words. How do you turn those into meaningful deeds? Very tough, because if it's not careful, it becomes a poster on the wall. It's about demonstrating them, you know, and demonstrating them every day. But whilst also appreciating that people will have a day off from them and people will make some mistakes and you have to accept that. It's, you know, we all want to live clean, healthy life to deserve. But the reality is sometimes you will drink too much. Sometimes you will nick off from work half an hour. It's human nature. So I think it's accepting that. But the majority of time living by them, teaching other people to live by them, calling people out if they're not living by them and reminding people of them. And, and it's just it's just important. But it's the words aren't important. It's the behaviours, which is the key. It's things like manners don't cost anything. You know, I think that's respect. You know, it's manners that... Uh, you say please and thank you to people. You still hold the door open. By the way, even if it's a woman, it's all right. You know, the world of I don't need a door open. Well, no, it's, it's just manners because I'll hold it whether you're a woman or a man or a child. The fact is you're about to come through a door, I'll hold it open for you. And I think it's these things of, and that's think sometimes as well, you know, we've, we're owned here by Delia Smith and Michael and jones They're 81 years old. And I think back to people I've touched on before, Joey Jones or Kenny, you know, the values which were true to them when they were at their prime, I still believe are true to that. I heard your Son Daesh episode, for example, and, and I think he stinks of just, now be a good person. 
mm. and expect that from others and that is still all right and not being embarrassed by that i think it's like i don't know we're, we're doing loads of things around innovation we're signing players for millions of pounds we're scouting in brazil we're doing this that, and the other but fundamentally when someone visits your training ground make them feel welcome make sure they have a cup of tea they have some food and that's what the values for me and the people around me mean more than necessarily going too deep on what does commitment mean because we can disagree on what that means because commitment for you might be different for me and we have to respect that we have 300 staff at the football club that their version of growth could be different they could growth could be purely focused about their individual growth my thought when i think about growth is the growth of the club you know so it's but it's the behaviors and the, the actions amongst it i think is the most important when we're talking about growth in a personal sense for you i do sense the real fundamental importance of the projects that you set yourself externally from football you know namely you, know, you climb Kilimanjaro in January you're going to climb Mount, Mont Blanc in the September window yeah. Himalayas during the World Cup and then next year hopefully Everest we'll talk about the the philosophical side of that a little later but in terms of practical terms how do you train for that? And why do you want to push yourself in that area? So Everest has been a dream since I was a child. So I was brought up in the countryside in mid Wales. So out my bedroom window, I looked at a mountain every day. And as a kid from the age of, everyone laughs at the size of my calves. I've got big calves. And it's like, well, yeah, because to get the bus was a mile walk up a hill from the age of six. And my, you know, I, was, I had a single parent as my mum. She was working, so you walked to your bus, me and my sister, normally me after the dragger. It's me. Being outside and being in that world is me. And what people don't realise, because, you know, I've come out to publicly talk about it, which wouldn't be normal. You know, there's very, you'll find very little on my private life, but I have about chosen to talk about this. But I've been doing this for a long time, but I wouldn't have got criticised previously because people didn't know. It's a bit like people can go on a holiday in Dubai. If you don't put the snaps out, people don't know you go on a holiday. They just say, oh, you're a nice colour, aren't you? Yeah, 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 nice summer in Norfolk. So in terms of the training, so, you know, I get up at five o'clock every morning. It's That's my routine. It, that's what I do every day, including weekends. And, you know, so I fit my training into their mornings. You know, if I look, I went, I did Cotopaxi in Ecuador in June. Since Cotopaxi today, which is transfer deadline day, I literally haven't done another climb, but I've trained every single day but I'm training while most people are most people are still asleep. In terms of my work, I knew that wouldn't affect my work. And when I had a very honest conversation with the owners about that and the rest of the board and the people I work with, because that was important as well, that I didn't want the people who I share an office with and talk to every day and drive every day to think that suddenly I was tossing it off because- mm. Up on some sort of midlife crisis. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, because that, that wouldn't have been right either, but they were like, well, to be honest, you give so much to the place. It's, if you are going to have the odd day off to go climbing, you know, good luck to you. So I think it's, um, I seek that sort of reassurance from people that I was doing the right thing. Painting on the game will not be able to get their head around this at all, will they? Mm. they no. Because it is such a consuming, obsessional world. Yes. Yeah, they must look at you and think you're from Mars. They do, but what's been nice within the industry is the amount of phone calls, people I've bumped into, emails from people going, wow, I wish I could do some of that. I wish I would actually have the bravery to step out of doing and get off the treadmill and go and do something differently. But, but also from a work context, we side as like Hayden, when I was 4,000 meters above sea level, I was on the phone to Dan Ashworth. Because I think the other thing people miss is when you're doing these expeditions, with the exception of probably the summit night, where, by the way, you start at midnight stroke one in the morning, so everyone else is asleep. The rest of the time, as part of it, you go out, you train, you, you know, you do an adaptation walk, you come back. You can be sat in a hotel, relaxing for eight hours, adapting to the altitude. So actually you get a lot of work done. You know, so uh, like I say, we signed as like Hayden from Newcastle. I'm on the phone to Dan Ashworth at 4,000 meters. He didn't know. So it's like also in this modern world, it's like, well, you can work. You know, I went to Brazil for a week for work and well, nothing stopped working within the football club. And I was much further away and much less contactable than some of the climbs I've done. So I, I equate it with something that, that I got involved in, which was sailing around the world. 
the people who do these type of things tend to be quite similar in terms of you know, being pretty humble because you're in a situation where you are seeing the true force of nature, you know, be it the Southern Ocean or be it you know, a traverse to the summit of Everest or whatever it would be. Is that a big thing for you, that you actually have to find almost meaning in the fact that I'm now in an area that I'm just this insignificant speck? Mm. Is that part of the motivation for doing it? Definitely. It's also part, if I'm honest, escapism. You know, it's very hard when you do a job like mine to actually ever be alone. And I like being alone and being just with my thoughts. So I think it's that. I think it's the the physical challenge. I like to I like to suffer a bit because I like to I, I to understand how far I can be pushed. But yeah, I think it's that achieving, trying to achieve something. And not also not just Everest, because people talk about it's the journey to get there, mm. which excites me a lot. You know, the climbs I've got to do in between, the training I've got to do in between. I'm learning lots of new things. I enjoy being guided rather than guiding. You know, it's nice to have a day off when you're climbing a mountain and you're actually following someone with a rope on you and your life's in their hands, as opposed to often you're the one at the front with the rope with people hanging off you. And, and so that, that's been quite nice. But um, yeah, I think it's... Like you say, you've you've done it. It's I think it's either in you or it isn't, and I get it totally if it's not, because you know I do understand it. I've got very very close friends and family who have tried to talk me out of it and actually can't get their heads around it, and I fully understand that. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but you just don't get it, and that's all right. There's a final question, Stu. Have you considered what I would call the come down effect? Yeah, you know, I'll be completely honest with you, it took me, when I got back from the, the round the world stuff, it took me a year to take sport seriously again. And that was my business, and I had to as an observer. You will be coming back, as we've discussed earlier, into a game which is evolving at you know, warp speed. Will you be able to look at the game in the same way when you come back as when you left it? It's an interesting question because I met a guy called Rob Lucas who's done Everest and K2. And when I went to meet him, the first thing he said to me, have you considered what you'll do after it? And I've gone, well, no, I'm still trying to consider how I'm going to do it. And he goes, you need to spend more time on that. So I unpicked that and he said exactly what you said. He said for him it was six months, so he's very high up in his business. And he goes, for six months, he says, he said, two weeks, I was physically tired. He says, but I soon recovered from that. He said, but for six months, he said, I couldn't get myself going. And that's where also I do think, who knows what happens in the next few years, but maybe I will come back to nothing and restart in a different direction, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe it won't be to come back to a job. It might be to retrain in something else, look at different industry, look at different sports, so I can have that, that new focus because you know what I wouldn't be willing to do is to come back into uh, Norwich let's say if I'm still here and let people down because that's not what I'm about what I stand for I appreciate everything I've had here and I wouldn't be willing to do that and, and it's the same through the training I've always said very openly to to Delia and Michael that if I ever feel it's getting in the way don't worry I'll leave so I think there's a lot of thinking to do on that fortunately I've got enough time to think about that, but you're completely right. But I still probably haven't got quite my head around how tough that bit's going to be. Well, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. And, Thank you for having uh, me. I hope it goes without saying safe travel. Thank you. So, Paul, I, you know, I really enjoyed that chat. Stuart Webber is a, is a singular man, isn't he? He's that mixture of realism and idealism. And I suppose the one thing that really sort of shone out for me was that he dares to be different. What was your impression of him? Yeah, the same. He's talking on two levels there, really. He's talking about culture and identity and ethics and how that helps to strengthen a club in the long run. But he's also aware, of course, that he has this, this very, very difficult task day to day with a club that has gone up and down from the Premier League to the Championship. And he is the guy ultimately responsible for finding players to keep them in the Premier League. I mean, getting promoted from the Championship is hard, 
in itself. So there's no easy season for him. He's got to go up and then he's got to stay up and it's all on his desk. And I sort of felt for him a bit because uh, you could be a very good decision maker in that role and still get relegated, you know, and you could be a very good decision maker in that role and still not quite get promoted from the championship, get beaten in the playoffs or whatever. But so he's doing an extremely good job on both those fronts. I was interested particularly in what he said about, you know, building character and perspective away from the game and his own interests and his own hobbies and his fundraising. He, he sounds like a rounded man. Yeah, he certainly is that. I was particularly intrigued, Rich, by the nature of the innovation that he's instituted there. He took me to see what they called their Soccerbot 360, which is basically designed to test the, a player's speed of reaction and cognitive quality, really. He also spoke about needing to develop the player as the game develops. You know, he's looking towards developing a player for someone who will thrive in five years' time. What did you make of all that sort of future tense stuff, if to put it in that way? Well, I, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, we, we spoke just before Stuart came on about clubs and their data departments and them boasting of having all this amazing software and things like that. And now we're talking about a club who fighting to kind of go above their means and talking about where seeing where the trends go and having that forward planning in place and I think when you're looking at having the data department that's exactly what you want you want to not just look for the here and now but look for what what are the future trends how can we get ahead of our opposition especially for a side like Norwich who as you say are, are, are doing things differently you have to think outside the box in order to thrive and I thought I thought it was fascinating, as you say, you talk about the Soccer Box 360 and, and how that develops players. And the ethos of not just developing the first team with that five-year plan in mind, but with the academy as well. And cause as you say, you know, when the kids are now, the 12, 13, 14-year-olds, you know, in five years' time, you know, they might be knocking on the door of the first team and you want them to be ready for for that change which is envisioned to come. So I thought all of that, that work and that mindset and that thought process is... Was absolutely was really fascinating, and I, I think clubs can definitely take a leaf out of that book. You know, we talk about clubs spending money and spending excesses, but having that nuanced thinking and having that that thinking outside of the box, I, I thought was was fantastic. And you know, someone like Weber at the helm there, they're only going to keep progressing. I, I know we've spoken about their yo-yo tendencies in inverted commas, but you've got someone there who's willing to innovate, willing to continue to drive a culture at a football club it's only going to keep the club in, in good stead and you can only really see progression going forward mm. what did you make Paul of his you know response to I think what he described as almost like a small death i.e relegation you know he has to you know run that club sustainably they don't have money to spend in some ways is that a bit of a blessing in disguise do you think that they haven't got the indulgence of just throwing money at the wall and see what sticks it certainly forces them to do things that money could do for them, doesn't it? It forces them to work incredibly hard on their academy and to get their recruitment absolutely right. I'm sure they'd rather throw money at it. I mean, there's an obvious contrast between Norwich and Nottingham Forest. You know, Nottingham mm. Forest have come up and bought 16 players. Norwich would never do that, would they? They'd never risk the future of the club in that way. So it's a high-risk approach. And, of course, you get... You get endless stick if you get it wrong. I mean, you, you get Norwich fans saying, well, what's the point of us coming up if we're not going to give it a proper go? You get the rest of the league slightly sneering at them. And Stuart Weber has to answer for all of that. It must be hard. I don't envy him, but he's obviously very single-minded about doing what he's doing and believing in it and trusting in it. You know, and you, you can only hope that it gets them back up and that this time they, they hang around for, you know, five or ten years. Yeah. When you look at it, Rich, Fulham had a pretty chastening experience when they did what Forrest are doing, just basically bought you know an absolute shed load of players who didn't really gel and, and they went down. Do you see signs that some of those players are benefiting from that experience this season? You know, they had a very good win on Tuesday night. And in terms of you know settling down, I know it's very, very early in the season, but they seem to be doing okay. I think so. I guess it's, that's what you want, isn't it? You know, learning from experience, learning from, 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 from past realities and using that to, to build on. And I guess Mitrovic personifies that 
think his relationship with Scott Parker in the previous Premier League season was was well documented, and even you know, previous players before that. And for them to to come back up is about you know making a statement and and not being that yo-yo club. A few of my colleagues spoke with um, with Tony Khan over the summer, and and that was that was his mantra. You know, we don't want to be this yo-yo club. We, we need we want to sustain. We want to you know thrive in the Premier League and. They've made some really good signings. I've been really impressed with the likes of you know, uh, Jacques Paulinia working very well with Harrison Reed in midfield and becoming a very awkward team to play against. And I think maybe in the past, not just in the previous season they were up, but when they made all those signings all those years ago, it was very open. Um, you can even say slightly naive in the sense that you know they're going for games where they maybe should have consolidated or or, or, or tried to hold out. So, yeah, I've been very impressed with, with what they've done so far. You say resolute, very strong, and playing to their strengths. And as you say, in a striker with Mitrovic, who you know personifies that strength. I mean, he's a, not just a bashing man, but he's proven effective in front of goal as well. You can only really see them progressing. Really, I've been very impressed with, with what they've done so far. Mm. Yeah, Fulham at Spurs on Saturday. Now, also on Saturday, we probably got what we might as well call the first relegation six-pointer of the season. Bournemouth are at Forest. Yeah, I said earlier on, you know, a bit flippantly, that basically uh, Scott Parker was sacked, Paul, for speaking out of turn. And it was unwise to basically say, yeah, well, we're going to get a few more of these thumpings. What do you make of that? Was he very badly treated, do you think? And again, what will be the the knock-on effect, one, with the team that he has there now, and secondly, you know, for the next sort of six to eight weeks, if it takes them a long time to appoint another manager, they've got a problem, haven't they? I think he was I think he was unwise to do it just from his own perspective, really, because to take the owners on as often as that in August too early in the season, you have to have a pretty strong base. You have to have a lot of authority to be able to get away with that. He got them promoted, but but he didn't really have the proven Premier League track record to protect him from the owner's vengeance, if you like. We know how touchy owners are these days. They, they see managers as heads of department, they don't like being held to account publicly. So I I can actually see why the owner took exception to it. That's not to say it was the right thing to do, but I think Scott Parker was exposing himself to that risk, really. And if you're ever going to get sacked for speaking out, a 9-0 defeat gives the owner an excellent excuse. (laughs) Yeah. With Forrest, Rich, basically their policy is high risk, high reward, isn't it? It is. It is. As you say, of the 16, 18 new signings now. It's, 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 you say it's going to be a, a fun ride either way, not just with the players, but with the whole ownership structure there as well and the, their history there. It'll be really interesting and intriguing to see. I mean, they, they've looked okay. You know, as you say, it looks like, you know, some of the players are joining well and, you know, they're causing teams problems in the, in the games that we've seen so far. But I think where the issues come will be in, in a couple of days, really, when when they have to submit their Premier League squads because look, I get you know, there was a higher turnover of players last season quite a few players went out the door so they had to replace them they had no choice but there may be a scenario where some of the new signings may not even be registered in this quota for the upcoming season which may prove problematic in itself you know what, what's going to happen to those players you brought them in promised XYZ and now they're out of the squad you know how how do you manage that it'll be a real test for, for Steve Cooper and the hierarchy there to to keep everything running smoothly, but okay, if it does come off, I mean, fantastic. And we all know that the riches of the Premier League and what it brings, and they're throwing everything at it. As a neutral, you think, well, this this is amazing. You know, who else are they going to get? Are they going to gel? Bring so many questions. And you say, I think, you know, in, in Cooper, they, they've got a good manager there, and you say keeping that kind of that core base. You know, the likes of Ryan Yates, the likes of Joe Wall as well, just trying to maintain that culture from last season. I think it's really important can't just get rid of everybody so really interesting to see where they go but I mean if they do put it off it would be fantastic yeah I just want to end Paul if I could on the, almost on the, the human factor in, in, in which underpins that sort of that forest policy I was intrigued to, to learn through a piece in the New York Times about one of their latest signings uh, Rain and Lodi now his career started out with a commodity trading company that added footballers to a portfolio which included rice and beans and soy and then they sold it to Atletico Madrid and the rest they say is, is history 
footballers are just commodities, aren't they? Yeah, it's easy to look at the absolutely vast uh, rewards on offer these days. You know, we mentioned Casemiro coming to Manchester United for a challenge, so-called. He's not coming for a challenge, is he? He's coming for a really healthy final contract pay rise. And, you know, in a country that's kind of reeling at the moment on all sorts of economic fronts, you look at the rewards of being a, an elite professional footballer and, it, and they, they are astounding. I suppose there's another side to it, which is what you're saying, Mike, and there's a commodification of the modern footballer and the footballer's life. And when you start seeing players traded as on inventories, uh, along with rice, beans and soy, it sets off a lot of alarm bells. And of course, it's up to the game's authorities and the clubs and the leagues to protect players from being kind of recast in that way. Would you trust the game to do it? Not particularly, but I, it's not something I personally would, would want to. Mm. I suppose, you know, looking at you know, the centrepiece of today's episode, that interview with, with Stuart, but what impressed me is that there is an essential humanity to his approach to the whole thing. For me, he stood out, or he stands out, for his clarity of thought and his desire to be different. But I think he also understands what the game means in a social sense. His mountaineering campaign has a charitable dimension. The Summit Foundation is designed to give young people greater opportunity. It's also based on the belief that football can help to bind families together. Now, that won't be reflected in the league table or his club's balance sheet, but I'd argue that that's just as important as either. So, thanks to Stuart for his time. And, of course, thanks to Paul and Richard for their insight. Thanks also to you, the listener. Please tell us what we can do to improve. Now, the best way to do that is by popping us a review on Apple. I promise we'll be listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.